We are in Isaiah chapter 40, and let's go before the Lord for a word of prayer. Father, we are so thankful that we get to open up your word and let you speak to us. And Lord, no matter how old or how young we are, Lord, your word, it can speak right into our lives. And so I pray that you would open up your word to us tonight. You would help us to hear what you are are saying to us. And I, I pray we'd be able to leave here, God, with just a greater appreciation and understanding of who you are. God, the greatness of who you are. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, amen. As far as introduction, let's just one more time set the stage with the kings. I know some of you have been faithful to be here three weeks in a row as we've been going through Isaiah. I've already heard this. Well, I bet you've forgotten it. Let's just be honest. But then beyond that, with our, with our high school kids here tonight, I just want to make sure we're all on the same page with where we are in world history when Isaiah is writing. So th- there was a king of, of, of Jerusalem, southern part of Israel. Israel had divided into two nations by then. In the north was, was Israel and the south was Judah. There was a king by the name of Amaziah who was a great godly king and he had a brother that was the name Amos. He was Prince Amos and he had a son whose name was Isaiah and that's the author of this book. He's a son of the brother of the king of Jerusalem. So he's born uh, later in Uzziah's reign. Uzziah was another great godly king and even greater politically. He was just so shrewd in his dealings with the other nations and so when Isaiah's a young man, man, the economy's rolling, the, the, you know, the prosperity, the prestige of being from Jerusalem was high. It was a great time when Isaiah grew up And that was also true as he became a a teenager in Jotham's time, in Jotham's day. But, But it was King Ahaz that really caused problems. King Ahaz was a wicked king. And he caused many problems spiritually for the nation. He would take his kids and light them on fire as sacrifices to Molech. And, and, and Isaiah is now in ministry and preaching against this king. In fact, most of chapter 7 of Isaiah is directed to him. And then, and then, and then Ahaz's son Hezekiah, one of the greatest kings Judah ever had. And we looked at his story last week as they linked together and fought off by prayer, by intercession, the Assyrian army that was bearing down them because that was the big bad doc, bad dog on the block. If you combine dog and block into one word, it's block. And that's what I said. So if you combine them together, that's who they were. They were powerful. They were a nation invading the world. And, and, and yet God fought them back from little Jerusalem by prayer and intercession with Isaiah and Hezekiah. And then he was put to death under Hezekiah's son. Uh, tradition says he was actually sawed in two by King Manasseh. So that's kind of nice to do to your father's best friend. But that's exactly the kind of guy that Manasseh was. Now, that's when Isaiah was writing. This book divides into four parts. The first 12 chapters, remember, are prophecies to Judah, written to the city of Jerusalem. Then, in chapters 13 through 35, Isaiah moves his scope away from just Judah, just Jerusalem, to the nations that are surrounding Jerusalem. And he goes around and he tells a little bit about their future and where they're going because God loves the nations as much as he loves his own people. Last week, we saw the third section, practical statesmanship, that teamship between Isaiah and Hezekiah as they came against uh, the Assyrian nation. And tonight, we get to the fourth and final section that we'll just begin tonight, the prophecies concerning the future. Here's where we're going to start talking about Messiah coming. Here's where we're going to start talking about the millennium and the second coming. All of that is in the second half of the book. And the second half of the book really just changes 
the tone. The first 39 chapters, oh, there's wonderful stuff in there, but they're rather judgmental. (laughs) It's judgments against Judah and judgment against all the nations around Jerusalem and judgment for Assyria through King Hezekiah. It's judgment, judgment, judgment. But look at chapter 40. Look at verse 1. Hear how this second section of the book opens up as Isaiah says, comfort. Yes, comfort my people, says the Lord your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. What are we seeing here? After correction, after 39 chapters of this is what's going to happen, kids. If you keep sinning, if you keep going in a direction contrary to my heart, this is what's going to happen. Judgment's going to come. It's not because God's mad. It's not because God's upset. It's because sin is bad for our lives. So he speaks to them. Judgment will come. But then notice what follows correction. And that's comfort. That's comfort. And that's how God works in our lives, doesn't he? He corrects the sin in our lives. Why? Because he loves you. He loves you. Remember this illustration? If my little kids, you know, are running around the sanctuary tonight, I'm going to tell them, hey, stop running. But you know who else might be running around the sanctuary tonight? Your kids. Your kids might be doing backflips off the stage as well. In fact, last time I said that, my son actually did a backflip off of the stage. It's like he heard me in children's ministry and said, I'll show you. So anyways, I'll correct my son, but your kids, I won't. Why? They're not my kids. If you don't care about them, they're just not my kids. So when God corrects us, we, why are you upset at me? Because we're his kids and he loves us. But after he corrects, always, always, he brings comfort. He brings comfort. You know why? Because the relationship is important to God. And can I speak for a second tonight to you that are parents in the room? What a great model. God's always a great model. <laughs> what a great model for us with our kids that we're trying to raise. Does there need to be correction? Yes, and you're foolish if you don't. You know why you're foolish? I don't throw that a term around lightly. You're foolish because if you don't correct sin issues in your life, in your kids' lives, things that aren't right, you're teaching them that sin has no consequences, and, and it does, it does, it does. So there has to be correction, but listen, listen. Correction without comfort is just brutality. And that's not what Jesus does. There's gotta be the truth. There's got to be correction. There's got to be discipline, but there's, there's got to be comfort because you know what? That relationship is important. It's important to God and it better be important to you because speaking truth into their lives and letting them speak truth into your lives, that works through the connection of relationship. And you know who knows that? God does. So he corrects us and he works on the relationship with us. He comforts us, a great model for you and I as well. Well, this final section, Isaiah 40 through 46, it, like the first part was in three parts, it's in the three parts as well. The first eight chapters that we're gonna kind of overview tonight focus on the greatness of God. Isaiah is just like, God is so great. And the next week, we'll see that he focuses on the graciousness of God. Most of the messianic prophecies about how Jesus would die, what he did for our sin and him coming again is in the the 10 chapters that we're gonna kind of overview next week. And then, in chapters 60 through 66, he focuses on the gloriousness of God in his coming kingdom. So the stuff about the millennium and things like that are in that final section. But tonight, we're going to focus on the greatness of God. 
And what we're going to see as we kind of fly over these chapters tonight is we're going to see the greatness of God as seen in his creation, in his declaration, and finally in his ability to bring restoration. So let's consider those one at a time. Look with me in chapter 40. We already read verses uh, 1 and 2, but let's look at verse 3. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill shall be brought low. The crooked places will be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all, all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The voice said, cry out. And he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades. But what? The word of our God stands forever. O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up on high hills, O Jerusalem, who bring good tidings and lift up your voice and strength. Lift up and do not be afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold the Lord God who comes with a strong hand and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd and will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand measured heavens with a span and calculate calculated the dust of the earth in a measure and weighted the mountains and scales and the hills of a balance who has directed the spirit of the lord or who has become his counselor who has taught him with whom did he take counsel with whom is he instructed and taught him the path of justice who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding behold the nations are a drop in the bucket and count as small and dust on his scale he lifts up the aisles, the very thing. Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor its beasts sufficient for burnt offerings. All nations before him are nothing, and they are counted with him less and nothing and worthless. To whom will you then liken God? Or what will you liken or compare him? The workman molds an image. The goldsmith overspreads it with gold. The silversmith casts silver chains. Whoever too is impoverished for such a contribution, choose the tree that will not rot. He seeks himself a skillful workman. He prepares Prepares a carved image that will not totter. Have you known? Have you heard? Has it not been since the beginning? Have you not understood the foundation of the earth? It's he who sits above the circle of the earth. In other words, in contrast, all these idols that you guys worship, who is God? He sits above the circle that is the earth. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out like the heavens, like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes judges of the earth useless. Scarcely shall they be planted Scarcely shall they be sown Scarcely shall their stock take root With him he will blow on them And they will wither And whirlwind will take them away like stubble To whom will you liken me? Or to whom shall you say I will be the equal to the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and see The thing has created them Who brings the host to number? He calls them by name The greatest of his number The strength of his power Not one is missing Why do you say, O Jacob And speak, O Israel My way is hidden from the Lord And my just claim is passed over by Has you not known Have you not heard The everlasting, the Lord The creator, the ends of the earth 
he neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak and those who have no might. He increases strength. I don't have to even comment. This is great stuff. Even the youth shall faint and be weary. And the young men shall utterly fail. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Glory. Who wants to give their life to the Lord right now? I don't have to say anything else, right? There's some good, that's some great stuff right there. Listen, Isaiah in this chapter, in the chapter we didn't read, chapter 41, he's, he's lifting up the greatness of God, especially in his creativity to create the world around us. See, please listen. The Bible is not a science textbook. It never claims to be. But when the Bible speaks about science, it's always accurate. And in this section of Isaiah, some of the greatest scientific statements ever recorded in the word as God declares, I'm the one who created the world. Notice with me verse 22 again there in chapter 40. What does God say? He says, you all these idols, you make them out of trees that won't rot. You carve them out of stone. That's a really great God, a rock, a a tree. He said, who am I? I sit, notice, notice, I sit above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. The Bible declares, listen, God sits above the circle that is the earth. Now, please understand the timeline we outlined when we started this. That's 2,000 years before 1492 when Columbus sailed the ocean blue. When some in Columbus's day said, don't do it, Columbus. Why? You'll fall off the eye. You'll fall off the side. The world's flat. Everyone knows that. God says, well, 2,000 years ago, I said this world is a circle. In fact, some of Christopher Columbus's biographers attribute Isaiah 40 as the inspiration for Christopher Columbus's daring journey. Listen to this excerpt from his journal. It was, was the Lord who put it into my mind. I could feel his hand upon me. It was the Lord who put it into my mind that it was possible to sail from here to the Indies. All who heard of my project rejected with laughter and ridiculing me. It is simply a fulfillment of what Isaiah prophesied. That's Christopher Columbus's day. You won't find that in a public school textbook, by the way. But this is what he believed. This is what he thought. They laughed him to scorn. But 2,000 years before, God says, I sit above a circle. Now, some read it and say, well, technically, the world is not a circle. It's a sphere. Really? So written in a time when people in Isaiah's day thought the world was on the back of a man named Atlas? When they thought that it was flat, you'd fall off, and God says it's a circle? You're going to reject it because he doesn't use the word sphere? Well, if God's really God, then he would be very literal. All right, weirdo, listen, listen. Now, see, none of you said that to me, so I can call you weirdos, because none of you are weirdos. The Hebrew word chug literally means, get this, sphere. It's what it means. God is not just right. He's exactly right. In his exacting detail, it doesn't even just stop there. In the latter part of the verse, it says he spreads out the curtains. He spreads out the heavens like a curtain. And he spreads out the tent like them to dwell in. Some of the greatest scientific minds at one time believed the universe had a constant size. 
Einstein called his teaching on this subject later in his life. Einstein, one of the greatest brains that ever was, he says, the teaching of the cosmological constant, that smart guy for the fact that the universe is one sta- it's constant size, was the greatest blunder of my career, he said. Why would he call it the greatest blunder? Because in 1929, Edwin Hubble discovered undoubtedly the universe, universe was expanding. It's not a constant side. It's actually expanding like a, guess what? A scroll. Again, if you just read your Bible, it's all in there. The God that created it said it's exactly what it is. Will you understand these things and realize that many other scientific facts and scientists and sciences began by people reading the Bible and believing what the Creator said. The field of oceanography began because of Isaiah 43, 16, when God said, Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea and a path through the mighty waters. Scientists reading that said, Is there really paths in the sea? And the whole jet stream and the things that we have discovered and the, the East Australian current and all those different things that we, we know scientifically exist, they, they, they went to look for them. Why? Because they read their Bibles. You go into every field of science, even archaeology. A hundred years ago, so much of what we love in this book, it would get mocked. The story we read last week, Assyria. Oh, there's no evidence that there's an Assyrian people there's no historical evidence that there's a city of Nineveh that Jonah went to and preached and that, and that King Shennacherib went back to and died in. That's ridiculous. It's just made up by the people that made up the Bible. And then they're digging around in northern Iraq and guess what? Chink! They hit Nineveh and they dig it up and the inscriptions in it are about Shennacherib and Rabshakeh and all these names we're reading about last week. God like buries them and says, when you're ready for this, I'll let you in on my secret. It's like archaeology catches up to the Bible. I just want to say sometimes, sometimes, sometimes we're made to, to be feel like, like you science, you Christians, you're the weak-minded people. You need a crutch, you know, that is Jesus to walk through this life. If you were really smart, you would believe in science. You know, I believe in God. I, you know, I believe in science. I don't believe in God. Anyways, the reality is this. Not true, not true. Not true. The God that you served created this all. Do I need a crutch to get through life? You better believe I do. I need to lean on Jesus Christ with all of my heart. But it's not because believing in this is somehow dumb or immature. In fact, some of the greatest minds that have ever lived, men like Galileo, they were men who believed the word of God, who believed what God said. Don't ever be ashamed of this book, friends. Don't ever be ashamed of this book. He is the creator. And you know what we can take home from that instead of just, hey, there's cool scientific facts in this section of Isaiah? The fact that he's the creator, you know what that knows? I don't have to fear. You don't have to fear. God has created this world and he has control over it. I don't have to fear. Isaiah 41.10 is a great verse to teach your kids. Fear not, God says in this section. Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Isn't that comforting to know that the one that says to the ocean, stop here, and they do. The one who said, let there be light, and there was. The one who said 2,000 years before Columbus, the world's a sphere, guys. Don't worry. 
That same guy has your life in his hands. Sometimes we feel better if we're in control, don't we? Some of us are very controlling people. It's why we don't like flying. That's exactly why I don't like flying. We all know that driving is way more dangerous, right? But at least I'm in control of the vehicle. When I'm in that airplane, it's... <laughs> I'm, in, I'm not in control. Now listen, it's a perfect illustration because would it be better or worse? I am not a pilot. Would it be better or worse if I went to that cockpit and said, give me the... I don't even know what to call it. A steering wheel? <laughs> the flappers you see how much danger the flight would be in i don't even know what to call those things would it be in a better shape if i was in control or not no 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 in fact it's nothing to do with our study tonight but you got i just want to let you in on this tonight when i was a high school pastor here when i had aaron's job which i did years ago they want it back soon i know just kidding but but here's the deal there was a guy that worked in our sound booth. I love our sound guys and guys that put the screen on. No one, no one ever thanks them until they make a mistake and they look at them like, what are you doing? They do so many things right. Thank those people every once in a while. But here, here, there was a guy back there named Rob Nash who's still a great part of our church, but he was a sound guy back then. And we were doing a missions trip to Maui. And he wakes me up in the morning. I had a tough missions trip. I know, someone's got to reach those people. And I volunteered. <laughs> send me, Lord, just like Isaiah, send me. But we're over there, we're over there in Maui and, and Rob Nash wakes me up and he says, hey, you want to fly with me? We have to go to this uh, neighbor island and take care of a pastor over there. And I was like, and have somebody else take care of the college kids? Let's go. Let's go. And we get to this airport and I realize, I go, who's flying us? He says, I am. I'm like, no, you're the sound dude. And sometimes, sometimes there's feedback. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes there's a problem with the sound. You're, I'm not getting in an airplane with you. And he's like, oh, I'm a very good pilot. And literally, as we're rolling this little two-person plane down the, you know, he looks over at me and he's like, by the way, you know, and you're in these things, you can't hear each other, by the way, Maui's one of the toughest airports to take off and land in the world. <laughs> I'm so not in control at this moment, but here's what I didn't do. I didn't take the, the wheel. I don't know what to call it. I didn't take the flappers. You know why? I had no idea how to fly that plane. It doesn't matter how easy the airport would be to land at. It wouldn't work if I was flying. I say all that to say this. So then why do we sit in the seat of our car with God who's saying, I got this. I created the world. I knew it was a sphere before anybody else did, actually. Anybody. I knew the heavens expanded. I knew there were paths in the sea. I know stuff you guys haven't even figured out about the world yet. It's going to be so cool when in the year 2027. They get, this is what he could do. And we go, I want to drive my life. Why? <laughs> Are you better at it than me? Yes. Don't we think that though? I just want you to see the ridiculousness of it. See the ridiculousness of it. God says, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I will deliver you. I will lead you. We say, what about me? Sit in the back and shut your mouth. That's what he should say to me. Because he's got it, friends. My job, love him. My job, seek him. My job, cling to him. His job, hold the universe together. I think he can take care of me. I think he can take care of you. Why? Because he's a great God. 
He's, he's great in his creation. Secondly, note taker, secondly, the next section we see is great in declaration. After Isaiah just lists so many of these facts, and I encourage you as you read it on your own, just, just underline them, just cool stuff he says about the world, cool stuff he says about you, cool stuff he says about how God's gonna take care of you in your life. But starting in chapter 45, it switches gears a little bit. And it's no longer about the greatness of God in creation. It's about the greatness of God in declaration. Let's just look at a little bit of chapter 45. Chapter 45 says, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, please, please note that, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue the nations before and to loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you. Make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the, bar, the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I am the Lord who call you by your name. I'm the Lord for Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect's sake. I even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. Why? I am the Lord, there is no other, there is no God besides me. Okay, now that you've read that, Isaiah is writing about 200 years before the fall of Babylon. Again, not much history tonight, but Egypt was a major world power at one time when the Bible's opening up. They took, they took, you know, the Israelites as, you know, they came in there and then they were their captives and then they got out of control of Egypt and, and power started to shift over, over the centuries. And by the time the middle part of the Old Testament is being written, Assyria is in control. Assyria is ruling and reigning and that, that's who took over the northern part of Israel. It's who was at Jerusalem's door when Isaiah and Hezekiah got on their faces and prayed and God sent one angel and the Assyrian, the greatest army was no problem anymore. But as Assyria kind of tucked their tail and run back to Nineveh, eventually, about a hundred so years later, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, saw them as weak and he came and just decimated the city of Nineveh. And Babylon became the world power. And Babylon will be the world power at the time when Jerusalem goes into captivity. When Daniel is written, when Ezekiel is written, Babylon is the major world power. But they have a world power of only about 70 years. At the end of the time, two fairly unknown tribes at the time, the Persians and the Medes, come together. And they come together, listen, listen, they come together under the leadership of a man named Cyrus the Persian. And eventually, he would be known as Cyrus the Great because he was a great military leader. And starting in the far, kind of like Iran area today, he sweeps across the northern Middle East, conquering Babylon, conquering the you know, what's left of Assyria and the Hittites. He starts moving down, and as he comes into to Jerusalem, there, really Jerusalem's already been taken over by Babylon, he goes in and conquers Egypt. And when he comes back, and he comes back to Babylon, this capital that he has decimated, the Jewish people who at that time were in captivity, they bring Cyrus the Great, Isaiah chapter 45 and 46. And they show him, they say, check out what's in our holy book. And they show him that God wrote his name. And we don't have time to do it tonight. 
But if you study how he overthrew Babylon with the first five verses of Isaiah 45, it's like God describes it to a T. Again, 200 years before it happened. So Cyrus gets to see this book and sees his name. Some people wonder, some of you that know your Bible wonder. Okay, so Babylon comes to Jerusalem, takes them over. Their captives there for 70 years. Why suddenly does the next great empire, Persia, say, hey, you guys can go home and build your temple and we'll even pay for it. Go ahead. Just We don't need more slaves. Just leave our nation and go be a homeland again. What empire would do that? the one ruled by the man that read his name in the Bible and God said, by the way, there's no God like me. It gave Cyrus this instant respect for the God of the Bible and that is why he let the Jews go home. It's why 50,000 returned and there's Joshua and Zechariah and then 50 years later with Ezra and Nehemiah, it all started because Cyrus saw God declare his name in the word of God. In fact, all over this book we see this. He just declares truth before it even happens. Again, I'm awed by his greatness, but what's our take-home in that? Our take-home in that is we don't have to counsel him. Okay, we got this. Because he created everything, I don't have to drive the car. (laughs) I can let him lead my life. Amen? Okay, great. Now, let's get a little more mature. That's step one. Step two, since he knows everything that's going to go on, you don't have to counsel him. Well, I would never do that. Oh, well, look what the Bible says about us. Isaiah 40. What's we'll you put up on the screen? Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40, 13 and 14. Let's go to that slide. It says, Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord? Or who has counseled him or taught him? With whom did he take counsel and who instructed him? See, what Isaiah is asking, Which one of you did God ask counsel for? I mean, who of us has that story? Like God appeared in your living room one day and said, I don't know what to do, Joe. This Satan cat is so much trouble. I just don't know how I'm ever going to overcome him. So much pressure being God. Has that ever happened? Have you ever had that conversation with God in your living room? Help me out. Help me out, please, Chris. None of us. Because that's, that's how you and I feel. We're like, I am so lost at work. I'm so lost at school. I'm so lost with my parents. I'm so lost with my kids. Yeah, I'm so lost. What do I do? God doesn't have those days. He says, I know what to do, and I know what to do 200 years from now, by the way. It's pretty awesome to be God, isn't it? But again, take-home lesson. Not not only do you not have to drive the car, you don't have to give him directions from the back. See, some of you are good at letting him drive. Go ahead, God. Corner, corner, corner. You're in the back screaming. Turn left, turn left, turn left. (laughs) Some of you are so good at that. In fact, I was with somebody today. I won't use his name because I don't want to get him in trouble. But we were talking about Siri and how Siri just turn left, turn left, turn left, turn left. Like she will won't stop until you turn left. And, and then and then and then you know. And it's like, well, this is much pressure. And then, then this guy said to me, "Well, at least she doesn't say I told you you should have turned right." <laughs> I don't know who he's talking about that talks that way to him. But anyways, some of you may do that to your spouses. I told you to turn the other way. Please don't do that to the Lord. 
He doesn't need your help, gang. He doesn't need your help. Think about Peter in the New Testament. He tried like all of us try. Let's not pretend like Peter's, oh, Peter, how could you do that to Jesus? Stop it. How many times do you do that to Jesus every day? The Lord says to Peter, I'm going to the cross. And you remember what Peter said, right? Not so, Lord. That's not a good idea, that cross thing. No. I've thought about it. I'm the rock. You said I'm the rock. I'm the rock, so count on me. No cross for you. I thunk it through. I'm Peter the rock. Let's just play what if. What if God said, sounds good, Pete. Let's go with your plan. How would have Pete felt about that later in his life? (laughs) Facing the Lord in judgment. How would you and I feel about that if there was no cross? We would be in trouble. We would be lost. And I guarantee, I guarantee where Peter sits now, (laughs) I don't know if heaven's like this, but I just picture the Lord every once in a while saying, so no cross, Peter, no cross? Because that's what I would do. I would occasionally just rib him a little bit. No cross? Are you sure you want no cross? But Peter knows now, listen, without a cross, there's no salvation. And with no salvation, there's no heaven. And I guarantee as Peter sits in heaven tonight, he just says, thank you, Jesus, for the cross. Thank you for not following my advice. Can we just apply that to our own lives tonight? Because I know know none of us, none of us in the room tonight are saying, God, no cross, no cross, because we realize... Thank you for the cross. But I bet there's something in your life that you're saying, nope, not that, Lord. Mm -mm, mm, mm, No, no, that, that doesn't fit with my master plan. Listen, you're not driving and you're in the back seat. So shut it and stop giving counsel. That's, you don't have to. Someone is upholding your life that loves you more than you can ever understand. You see, it's one thing if there's a crazy person at the wheel. God's at the wheel. God's holding the universe together. God knows the future. He doesn't need your counsel. He just loves you. You know what he wants? Your trust. You know what he wants? You to worship him and just say, Lord, it's crazy right now in my life, but I know you're good in this. I bet that blesses him. I don't want my kids ever coming to me and saying, Dad, how is that mortgage going to get paid this month? Because you know what? I'm... Not that I have to worry about that here, but if I ever did, I will figure that out because I'm their father and I love them. That's not their job. Their job is to give me a hug before I tuck them into bed. That's their job. Their job is to get their room clean. Their, Their job is not to make sure everything goes right in our family. That's my job. But why do we treat God that way? It's his job to be God. It's not your job. This isn't even my notes tonight. You just need to hear this, I think. Someone here tonight needs to hear this. Would you let him be God? Would you let him drive? Would you stop counseling him? He doesn't need your counsel. Doesn't mean he doesn't like to hear your voice. He just doesn't need your counsel. So cry out to him. Love on him. Trust in him. Why? Because he's great. He's the great creator. He's the great declarer, declaring the word before it even happens. And finally tonight, finally, he's the great restorer. Chapters 47 and 48 in your Bibles. If you're one that writes in your Bible, you might want to put as a title, the tale of two cities. 
Remember Charles Dickens' classic? Because it's re- it really is the tale of two cities. Chapter 47 is the tale of Babylon. Babylon, who God describes how he's going to raise him up. Remember again, remember, as Isaiah is pinning this, Babylon is an insignificant tribe in modern-day Iraq. They're not a world power, but God speaks of them as if they, as if they will be, because he knows they will be. Again, a hundred years before they were significant, he's writing with them as if they're the U.S. of A. today. But he doesn't just write of their ascent. He also writes of their judgment. Why? Because even though God used them as an instrument for destruction, some of the things they did was ungodly and unright, and they never truly turned to the Lord, even though God sent them. Ezekiel, Daniel. Daniel was like best friends with the king of Babylon. They could have learned. They didn't. They didn't. And so they were judged by Cyrus the Persian and the Persian Empire. So God tells Babylon, I'm going to raise you up, but I'm also going to take you down. Then in chapter 48, you have the story of the restoration of Jerusalem. So 47 is the ruin of Babylon. He speaks about them coming into power before they even exist and how they will be destroyed. And then in chapter 48, he talks about how he's going to restore Jerusalem. You see, Jerusalem was going to be invaded by Babylon. First in 608 BC, finally in 586 BC, Babylon would burn them to the ground. But God speaks to them in 48 and all through Jeremiah. And we'll look at it in more detail when we get to that book here in a, really just a few weeks. But as God speaks to them, he says, I'm going to restore you after 70 years of captivity. In other words, I'm going to judge you for your sin. You did something wrong. But just like we started tonight, I'm going to comfort you and I'm going to bring you back. That's what God does. In fact, story is told of Frederick the Great, king of Prussia, who wanted proof for his own life that God existed. And he asked one of the philosophers in his court, can you give me one single irrefutable proof of the existence of God? And he said, of course I can, your majesty. The Jews. The Jews. Because God deals with them over and over again. And what? Brings them back into their homeland. They don't, even ex- they don't even exist anywhere in the Middle East in the early 1900s. There's more Jews living in New York than there were living in the Middle East in the year 1900. And yet God speaks in Ezekiel, we'll get there, that says, I'm going to fill the land of Israel with my own people. There's going to be a nation again. You're going to speak Hebrew again. People thought, oh, that's ridiculous. That'll never be fulfilled. But on May 14th, 1948, that's exactly what happened because God always keeps his word. And God, when he's dealing with his people, which by the way, includes you and me, we're his people. Sometimes there is judgment for sin. Maybe you're facing hard things right now because you made a poor choice. Listen, learn the lesson. There's consequences to sin, but don't you turn your back on God. Because God wants to restore you. God wants to refill the years, the locusts of Eden. He wants to bring you back like he brings Jerusalem back over and over again. And I find it so interesting. He tells us in Isaiah 48, 9 and 10 why he's this way. Why he loves to be good to his people. The answer might surprise you. Look at verse 9. It'll be up on the screen. For my people's sake, I will defer my anger. And for my praise, I will restrain it from you. So I do not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I will do it. For how should my name be profaned? 
I will not give glory to another. You know what God says? I'm doing it for my name. You see, Israel, the word Israel, means at its core, governed by God. Jacob, the father of the 12 tribes, when he wrestles God and finally says, uncle, I'm not going to fight you anymore. God says, no, you're not. And I'm changing your name. I'm changing your name to Israel because now you're going to be a man governed by God. And they were, they were known as God's people. So even though they would go off and do different things, and God would have to work in them because sin always has consequences. He would always want to bring them back and always want to restore them. Why? Listen, listen, it's key. Because they were bearers of his name. That's good news for you, Christians. Why? Because you bear his name. Christian means Christ-like. Little Christ. It was first given to the church as a derogatory term. Ah, those people just act like little Jesuses. And now we hold that up as a banner, as we should. Now listen, listen, listen. I know, I know, I know. We don't always act very Christ-like, do we? Sometimes we have the tendency to get upset, to get angry. I still don't have time for another story, but I'm going to tell it anyways. <sighs> Spent half of the afternoon with someone who wants to bless my family tremendously by giving us a free spa. Doesn't that sound great? Free spa. I, I have wanted a spa in my backyard because my back hurts all the time. Praise the Lord. A free spa? Free. Let's do this. So I get a couple of guys and go over there. And I realize this, in my mind, I'm picturing, you know, four of us just kind of pick it up and hoof it into the U-Haul I'd rented and bring. This thing is 10 foot by 10. It's the size of the spa at your health club. It's just above ground. You can fit six adults in this thing. Someday when it's in my backyard, sort of for free, because I have no idea what's going to finally cost it to get me there, it's going to be awesome. I'll invite you all over. We can, we, half the room can fit in this spa. It is so big. But getting it up a grass hill, not, not, a, not a paved hill where we could put rollers onto it, a grass hill. The thing literally weighs a ton. Four, three, three hours at least of people. There are people in this church that are no longer my friend. They are no longer my friend because this isn't their spa. And they are there sweating. One guy had his complete pants ripped. I have, I have very little friends in this church anymore because they did every. And guess what? We didn't get it off the property. It's still just sitting there. Why? This thing is an elephant without legs and we're trying to push it. There were some very un-Christ-like moments. <laughs> now, before you, get, before you walk out, not really with me, because it's my free spa, <laughs> but these poor people <laughs> that are helping me, I can see it. <laughs> They're speaking in tongues, curse words over me. They really are. They really are. There is some... And I'm po I point this out to you because real life, real life, we're not always Christ-like. Good news, though. Good news. I am because I'm getting a free spa. 
I should have ended the study five minutes ago. I'm so sorry. But here's the good news. We bear his name. You know what that means? We mess up, we fail. And God, sometimes there is consequences. But God is not done with you. Because you bear his name and his love upon your life. He's not done with you. I think the takeaway from this, first lesson, stop driving. Second lesson, stop giving him advice. From the fact that he's a great restorer, you turn to him, not to the worthless idols that got you in trouble in the first place. You see, Isaiah keeps begging them. Why would you turn to stones and rocks and things you made out of wood when the living God who created the world wants to lead you and guide you and give you advice and restore you when you sin, what are you doing? And we can hold up our nose at the Jews and say, I don't have a little statue. I don't know anything like that. But we have things that we value above God in our lives. And God would lovingly say to you, are you done turning to those things? Because how they've done you no good, right? So turn to me who can lead, who can declare, who can restore because I'm a great God. I'm a great God, he would say. We see this in these sections that just in various ways hold up the greatness of God. So Father, as we close tonight just with a couple of songs, I pray that you drive this lesson deep into our hearts. We see in your word, Lord, you are a great creator. You spoke the world into existence. You told us stuff about it in your word that we didn't even discover for years and years and years. You told us in Jeremiah the stars were as numerous as the, as the sands on the sea and people used to argue, no, there's only 1,000 stars. We know, we know, we know until we got this telescope and looked up into the heavens and said, you know what? God's probably right. We thought we'd fall off the edge of the world until you said, no, it's a sphere. God, you, you've got this whole thing and I pray it wouldn't be just the thing that the world, you've got us. Lord, let us let you lead. Lord, let us stop giving you advice you don't need. May we instead just give you worship that you say you seek. Worship, Lord, that I don't think you need I think we need. I think we need moments of getting our eyes off ourselves and saying, you are God, you are king. And I don't need, I don't need to lead you. I don't, need, I don't need to direct you. I do need to be restored by you. I need to stop turning to these worthless idols that have let me down over and over and over again. And God, I need to turn to you. Help us, Lord. Help us, Lord. Take these things away tonight and then apply them to our individual situations that each of us are facing tonight, Jesus. For you are God and we are not. In Jesus' name we pray.